the second letter to the Corinthians chapter 5. Guests, this is a safe place. If you're new to the Bible, you haven't, you haven't read a Bible, you didn't bring a Bible with you, all you need to do is just grab a device and Google, search for 2 Corinthians 5. It'll figure out if you misspell it. And uh, I'll do all the rest. You're going to want to read it for yourself. Chapter 5, beginning with verse 1, the translator heading reads, Our heavenly dwelling. Our heavenly dwelling. And I just can say I am so pleased, so pleased that we paused our study of the book of Acts these past few weeks to meditate upon the topic of courage and rest, rest, which was the theme of our, it feels like a lifetime ago, uh, Church Camp 23 last month, making the connection between resting in Christ, resting in Christ and taking courage, take heart, be of good cheer. If you recall a few weeks ago in a sermon in the book of Acts, we encountered the Apostle Paul in the most dreadful of circumstances. He was in a prison cell. The city outside was it was breaking out in a riot, and there was a conspiracy over 40 men conspiring to kill him. And Jesus visited him that night. He stood beside him in his prison cell. And his instruction, his command for the Apostle Paul was, take courage. It was a very timely message for him and for us. Take courage. And that led us to the question, we asked a question that then brought us to this passage today. If you've been following along, a question you've been asking for a few Sundays now as we consider this command to take courage. How does courage relate to rest? How does courage relate to rest? Soul rest, not physical rest per se. Which Soul rest, which is what, what Christianity offers. Which is at the center of the entire proposition of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that you can be reconciled to God. You can be reconciled to God and experience true, durable life, altering now and forever peace. Rest. How, this is our question, how did Paul, the apostle, explain how he took courage? How is it that he could say, this is what we've read in our passage, he could say that he was always of good courage. For if there's anyone who, who could say, I am discouraged, right? It would have been Paul. It would have been Paul. The, the connection between courage and rest. And how as we take courage, we rest. That's what we've been after, right? That's what we've been after. And I've been so encouraged to watch the Lord meet so many of us. Uh, just hearing testimonies as, you, as the Lord has spoken to you since, we'll say, in October when we went away to Idlewild all the way through to now, as he's been meeting us, this connection between courage and rest, that's what we've been after. And this week, we take a final look at this text, focusing on what Paul, maybe Paul's third reason, explanation, kind of the pull, the pull back the curtain and see what was going in, on inside Paul and, and his companions' hearts and minds that he could say, I'm a, we're always of good courage. We've considered a, that this isn't our home, our future home, our forever home, and the gift of the Holy Spirit last week, and now this week, the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ. Would you look with me? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. I'll read our attention today. We'll actually just be focused on verses 9 and 10, but I'll read the whole passage. Follow along, verse 1. 
Paul writes, for we know, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home, our body, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we were still in this tent, verse 4, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Verse 6. So, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Verse 9. Our attention this morning. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each, may, each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The very words of God. Would you pray with me for understanding? Father, Father, we confess that our hearts are so often disordered we're afraid when we should not be afraid. We're fearful when there's nothing to fear. We lose heart. We're not of good courage all the time. And it's, it's often not because we found ourselves in a hopeless situation. It's because we've not hoped in you. We've not hoped in you. Instead, we've hoped in ourselves and anything and everything but you. So we pray, as we consider this text one more time, you would help us. Help us. Teach us how to think and feel what to believe and to trust. Rescue us from the, the conversation going around in our heads and our hearts that, that tells us that you're not to be trusted. And that we're not safe. Change us from the inside out, we pray. Father, I pray you would help me as I serve my friends. In Jesus' name. Amen. And I, oh boy, I just, I feel it this morning. I'm preaching to myself. (laughs) Uh. Yeah, maybe I, just sorry, just explanation. I, I saw my, my mom, my mother last week. I wasn't here. Saw my mom, went to another funeral in, back, back in Pennsylvania where I grew up, and then I'm going to see her again this week. And during the week, I'll be back next Sunday. But just feeling the weight of grief <laughs> and uh, sorrow. So I, I preach to myself. I want, I want to have good courage. Uh, even though I'm a pastor, and I know pastors are superheroes. Uh, no, I am. I don't know. Uh, no, we're not. 
I struggle as well. Uh, listen, I want to suggest to you this morning um, that one of the reasons why so many of us, so many of us struggle, struggle with anxiety, fear, depression, and, and I know there are a number of reasons. Listen, I know there are a number of reasons why, why someone, could, someone, someone could be struggling with anxiety and fear and depression. I know that. We know that. It's complex, and it, and it should never just be you know, dismissed with a simple trite saying. But, but at the risk of not taking my own advice and counsel uh, and not building enough bridges and make, making uh, a trite saying... <laughs> that could be misunderstood. Let me, let me say it as plainly as I can because I think it's so easy for all of us to dismiss it and to look anywhere else for it, an explanation as to why we struggle. I think for many of us, many times, it's this. Sin, sin makes us sad. Sin makes us sad. It, it is difficult. It's difficult to be of good courage. Listen, and, and, and in that good courage, because it takes courage to rest in Christ, it's difficult to be of good courage and enjoy rest when our purposes run contrary to that which brings us joy. When our, our purposes, our, our life ambitions are running contrary to the way God has designed us to live and to function, to flourish. Or to say this all in reverse, sin, sin is a great prescription, a, a great plan. Sin is a great plan for those who are seeking to be anxious. <laughs> if you want to be fearful... I got a way to do that. Sin. Sin makes us sad. And again, I'm going to build the bridge one more time, but someone in the room's misunderstanding me already at this moment, and, and I want you to hear. It's, it's not that simple. It's, it's not always that simple. There, there are other reasons why you, you, you could be sad. You could be struggling with anxiety and fear. A anxiety is a gift in many ways. It tells us there's, we're in danger. There's, there's potentially future danger up ahead. And we should be anxious about those things. There's, there's good reasons to be anxious. There's good reasons to be fearful. And sometimes we're depressed and we, there's, there's no explanation. We don't know why. We're, we're just, you might say, stuck in our sadness. But, but, I, but I think too often we ignore the connection. The connection, the correlation, you might say. That's the correlation between our actions, uh, our behaviors, our decisions, uh, even our thoughts, our thought life, what we're thinking about, what we, what we tell ourselves, what we dwell upon, what we meditate on. We, we ignore and sometimes even deny the connection, resist that there is a connection between our actions and our emotions. Our actions and our emotions. As if our mood, as if my mood my state of mind, my feelings have nothing to do with what I do. No oh, goodness. 
I could go on and on just, just this weekend, the things that I do, like getting angry, and how they affect my emotions, like being sad. No, our actions and our emotions are connected. <laughs> Charles Hodges, uh, now that's not the old theologian, but a wonderful physician who today continues to write, he's an old guy now, but uh, who, who writes about biblical counseling. He's a physician writing about biblical counseling. During an interview a few years ago, he was asked a question. It's a wonderful interview. Uh, he, but he's asked the question. He's, he's trying to help some biblical counselors and a biblical counseling uh, association. He, he's asked, is depression an evidence of sin or sickness? Is depression an evidence of sin or sickness? And, and he points out that that's a really hard question, a complicated question to answer, mostly because in that one sentence it has the words depression, sin, and sickness. Okay, so it's really complicated. But he says, here's what he says to get to, uh, in part, his answer. He says, when you say, I am depressed today, he's speaking of today, when, when we say, I am depressed today, what we mean by that isn't what we meant he writes 35 years ago, and that was about 10 years ago now, so 45 years ago. He said, this is his answer, before, before the 1980s, which is ancient history, and a, and a revision, there was a revision of a medical manual on mental disorders. This is what he writes. A patient in this manual could not be diagnosed with major depression prior to the 80s. Physicians would not diagnose, could not diagnose a patient with major depression if he or she, it was right in the manual, if he or she could tell the physician why they were sad. So prior to the 80s, this is his answer, he, he, we reserved a diagnosis of major depression for only people who simply couldn't say why they were sad. Okay, he said, in 1980, the, the medical manual removed cause. Cause as a reason for sadness. Cause meaning, and he says, loss of a loved one, loss of a job, or some significant loss of life. In fact, it was in 1980 that they changed it. The only, only uh, cause that could cause sadness in this medical uh, uh, manual for, for uh, mental illness was uh, for a widow. But only for two months. Then you had to get over it. Then in the, I think it was in the early 2000s, they eliminated that. Even, even if you had lost your spouse and you felt sad, that was not connected to your depression. This is what he says. They, it, the medical manual in, 19, in 1980 removed the cause, uh, cause as a reason for sadness. And as a result, in his professional experience and opinion, 90%, this is his guess, 90% of those diagnosed with depression today are really suffering with what would have been called in the past sadness. Sadness. He said, no one says that they're sad anymore. Everyone says, I am depressed. Mm. This, he continues. Yet as I have practiced medicine for the last 40 years, the vast majority of patients I have seen could tell me why they were sad. They could identify that which they had lost 
or suffered at the start of their sadness. And it's dangerous to say this, but as a pastor, I would agree. That's been my experience too. It's my experience with myself and those that have counseled me and as I have counseled others. Most people can identify what it is that caused them to begin to be sad. Sin, in particular, my point, makes us sad. See, the, the Apostle Paul here, right, right at this end of this, this passage about good courage, this, the Apostle Paul reveals one more piece of the puzzle as to how it was you might say, in his constitution, in, in his experience, and in his companion's experience, how it is that he was, could say how it was that he really was always of good courage. And this one, of all the other ones, this one out of the three may catch you by surprise. The most surprise, although I think we already know it intuitively, <laughs> definitely biblically, absolutely theologically. He, the Apostle Paul, in essence, is saying, even in a prison cell, even with 40 people outside, not vowing not to eat or drink until they have killed me, and a whole city in a riot, and now the Lord's saying, what I'm doing here, what I'm doing here, I'll have to go to somewhere else and do it again. Paul can say, still I sleep well at night, so to speak. I'm not troubled in my soul. I'm not suffering from crippling anxiety or debilitating fear or unbearable sadness and it, it, it wasn't the explanation wasn't his personality was it he says i'm of good courage even in the middle of all that i've taken heart that's another way that courage is is interpreted throughout the new testament i i have taken heart and how is it possible paul lets us in on what's going on especially in the light of his circumstances he says, finally, because I make it my ambition to please God. I'm of good courage, always. Because my ambition, my ambition is to please God. If, verse 9, if you look with me, it's, there it is. So whether we are at home or away, regardless of my circumstances, and oh, we want to change our circumstances, and you might say blame our circumstances, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Now, and listen, here's what's going on if you read between the lines. If you read between the lines what's happening here, Paul is saying the little secret here and how he's experiencing all this is that there is great pleasure in pleasing God. There is, and you know this, we all know this, we have experiences, there is great pleasure in pleasing God. Let me, let me say just three things this morning. I, I hope they help you to make a little more sense of your experience of fear and anxiety and, and hopelessness at times and how regardless of your circumstances in life, you can be of good courage and rest in Jesus even if you have a list of sins that feels like it just keeps growing and growing and growing. Listen, number one, well, reality number one that we read between the lines here number one god grieves god grieves when we do evil it's it's there 
God grieves when we do evil. We mustn't, listen, we mustn't miss the connection between our behavior and actions and our emotions. Can't miss the connection even with our communion with God and our actions. What we do. Especially for those, we have to be very careful, especially for those like you, like me, who know so well that there is nothing we can do, right? There's nothing we can do to earn favor with God. There's nothing we do to earn favor. That's, that's the very central message of, of uh, the gospel. It's, it's on the name of our church out front, not Women's Club, but Sovereign Grace Church. There is nothing we can do to earn favor with God. It's His sovereign, His power to grant grace to restore our relationship with him that was broken and severed by our sin for those of us who've been convinced of this listen those of us that there is forgiveness for sins forgiveness for every sin and reconciliation with god which is just if you peek down in the passage the whole next thing is about the ministry of reconciliation there is reconciliation with god it's possible through the gracious, unmerited, nothing you've done, feels scandalous, finished work of Jesus Christ. On the cross. It's our identification with him, right? Jesus, that saves us. We know this. this We've got to be careful. It's all about what he has done. That he saves us. We don't save ourselves. And that we can never lose this. He saves us, he won't lose us. We forsake ourselves, we place our faith and trust and hope in him, right? This is what we believe in what he has accomplished, his perfect life lived, placed, overlaid it, you might say, upon our lives. He dies, we die with him. He lives, we live with him. The great mystery of faith. God the Father counts the righteousness of His Son as your righteousness, our righteousness, almost as if we're clothed in it. It's almost as if we are the same person. Almost. For we have been, by faith, united to Christ. We all know this. We love this. We cherish this. This is what we believe. The Christian enjoys union with Jesus. We're one with him, union with Jesus, an unbreakable bond that doesn't waver or change. An unbreakable bond with God. We are adopted into his family. You're a son, you're a daughter. No one and nothing can ever separate us from him forever, right? We all know this and love this. We sing about it. It's on our signs. It's everywhere. And the Spirit, oh, last week, Pastor Dustin did such a great job with his assignment, point two of my first sermon. (laughs) So helpful. As we learned last week, we've been given his Spirit as a deposit. Verse five, you see it there? On what, what he has accomplished. Verse five, if you look, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God. God did it right who has given us the spirit as a guarantee all that said we mustn't confuse our union 
with God, with our communion with God. Two different things. Our union with God and communion. We can't confuse the two, union and communion. There is a difference. This is why Paul writes to the Ephesians. Here, here, here we're getting a little more insight into Paul's thinking. Do not grieve the Holy, Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. He was referencing Isaiah who wrote, but they rebelled and grieved the Holy Spirit. Therefore, he, God, the Lord, turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. <laughs> don't grieve the Spirit. <laughs> don't, don't prompt the Spirit to fight against you. <laughs> that good deposit we have been given. Or to the Thessalonians, Paul writes, don't quench the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. There is a difference. Listen, there's a difference between union with Jesus and communion with Jesus. And although our union never changes, our union with Christ never changes forever, our communion absolutely does. Our experience of our communion, our fellowship with God changes. It feels like on a moment-by-moment basis in my life, we can experience greater measures of comfort and assurance and peace and rest and understanding. We can experience greater measures of discernment and even power, power to resist temptation, power to serve and minister, power to even speak truth into our own hearts and to speak truth to others. We can enjoy different measures, greater measures of the work and the power and the presence and the communion, the fellowship with God, with God and less so as well. You feel like you left the building. The Holy Spirit dwelling inside us. God himself dwelling inside us. Verse 5 again. He who prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Listen, we're, we're encouraged. We're encouraged to cultivate this communion all throughout the Scriptures and to enjoy this relationship. To enjoy this. That's what, that, 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 that's what made John Piper, you know, John Piper, the famous preacher from somewhere in a flyover state out there. He, he, this is what John Piper said famously. He made it, it was just so helpful. He said, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. There's, there's something about our satisfaction and our trust and our relationship with him that, that affects our communion with him. He's glorified in us as we're satisfied in Him. And when we're satisfied in Him, we enjoy Him. And when we enjoy Him and we fellowship with Him, we experience, we experience the benefits of this good deposit. There's a play off of the old Westminster Shorter Catechism, right? What is the chief end of man? Why do we exist? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him. <laughs> But this means, back to my first point, when we do evil deeds, as he writes in verse 10. When we do evil, when we sin, when, and by sin I mean every sin, I don't mean just the big stuff. It's all sin. Unbelief itself, sin. Although some are more twisted and uglier than others. This means that God grieves when we disobey when we sin when we live for ourselves or for something else rather than for what he has created and redeemed and changed us and transformed us and is doing in us instead when we disobey 
when we disbelieve, when we in countless, countless ways say, I don't trust you. I'm going to trust something else, which is usually me. Even for you. No, I'm doing it. For, for me. And that, that affects our experience of God's presence in our life. This is in between the lines here. God grieves, and therefore, make no mistake, it's really hard to be of good courage. God grieves, and then we grieve. Sin is a perfect way, a prescription for feeling anxious and afraid and sick and vulnerable and alone. You're not alone. <laughs> We're not alone. God, God will never leave you nor forsake you, but when He grieves, you grieve. When we're not satisfied in Him, nothing will satisfy us. Our cravings, when we go to meet our, the, the needs that we feel and the impulses that are running through our veins, our desires, and we go to satisfy them somewhere else, whatever that is, we find ourselves dissatisfied. And it's hard then to be encouraged. Instead, we're discouraged. Listen, sin introduces these evil deeds, introduce an experiential, an experiential distance between us and God. A, a lessening, you might say, of our communion with God. Not union, but communion. There is great pleasure in pleasing God, but there is no pleasure in pleasing ourselves. There's no pleasure in pleasing yourself. So when Paul says, I'm always of good courage. Why? Because I make it my aim to please God. You want the opposite of that? Make it your aim to please yourself. Spoiler alert. You'll be dissatisfied. Probably sad. Maybe depressed. Lots of anxiety. Fear. I, I remember this so well. I remember there was a, a moment. I, my wife was there. It was like, oh gosh, it, must, it feels like it was 30 years ago on a retreat with a church down from down in San Diego and we were all just praying for one another and it was just a wonderful moment at the end of a passage and I just remember someone was praying for me and says what are you experiencing or whatever and I said I just feel sick and it was that moment where I just felt I just felt bad not I didn't even I didn't feel I didn't make any sense of it. I didn't feel guilty I didn't feel uh, condemnation. I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't, nothing in particular was coming to mind. I, I was just at the beginning of a revolution in my life with Christ and a, you might say, a spark of new levels and measures of communion with Christ. And it was freeing, but it felt sick, <laughs> sickening. I was aware of how I was grieving God. 
for all of my evil deeds. That's, that sin had introduced it. I was united with Christ, but it had introduced a experiential distance between me and him. There was no pleasure when my eyes opened up, when I was awakened. There was no pleasure to be found in living for my own pleasure. When you sense a distance in your relationship with God, this is a good time just to stop and say, if, if, if you're... If, if this is ringing a bell, you sense a distance in your relationship with the Lord, it's wise to ask yourself, if, if there's some sort of melancholy ex- experience, and oh, there are good books about this, the famous one being Spiritual Depression by Mar- Mar- uh, Lloyd-Jones, whatever his first name was, Dr. Jones, Lloyd-Jones. <clears throat> Martin Lloyd-Jones, you know. <laughs> it's good to start with the basics. Let's just start and just, when, 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 when you feel that distance, when you don't feel anything, or you feel like I felt that moment as I was being prayed for, it's just, just in general discomfort and just blah about me and my life. It's good to ask the question, is there something there where I am living not to please God, but to please myself, and in doing so, the Holy Spirit, God's own presence in my life, God himself grieved by how I'm living and what I'm doing, and that I've grieved with him and an opportunity to repent. Rather than, and this is our, the danger, to say, nothing changes between me and God. I'm forgiven for all my sins, past, present, and future. And so then, with that in mind, I just keep on going. I head down. Whatever I'm doing now, it'll come back to me. I'll feel it at some point. I'll feel better about this at some point. This sadness I'm feeling, it must be something else. Maybe I need to go to the doctor. And you might need to go to the doctor. And actually, if you meet with one of your pastors, by the way, Pastor Mike, he was raptured last week. No, I'm joking. <laughs> Mike, Mike and Lois, the rest of us were all left behind. Left behind. No. Uh, they are at a wedding in, Ho- no, not Hawaii, in Mexico. Uh, they're in a wedding in Mexico. Uh, <laughs> but if you met with any one of us, you'll find, we'll ask the question, maybe you should go see a physician. But it won't be the first thing we say. Let me just ask, tell me about your life. So often, so often, what comes in and says, I, I'm, I'm depressed, comes out with, I'm grieving the Spirit. And when the Spirit of God is grieving, I feel like I'm grieving. As one theologian said, I feel like there's just a wet towel over my soul. You know that feeling, and I would encourage you to to ask yourself that question. But number two, very briefly now, number two, God rejoices when we we do good. God, God grieves when we do evil. God rejoices when we do good. Again, we're not talking about meriting grace. We're, ta- we're, we're saved by faith alone in Christ alone for God's glory alone. But Paul, the apostle, has been experiencing this part firsthand. This 
by making his ambition to please God. Verse 9, so whether we are at home or away, regardless of my circumstances, how matter how bad, no good kind of Tuesday this has turned out to be, still I will make it my aim to resist temptation and to please myself and instead to please him. He experiences God's joy. And that affects us as well. You've got to make the connection. You know, in fact, Paul makes this connection. We see it right in Acts 23. You don't need to turn there. But when he starts and he's, he, you might say, in the middle of causing all the problems that got him in jail and everyone wanted to kill him in the first place, what does he So He starts out, here's how he starts out his speech. He opens up his mouth, gets in trouble. This is what he says. He looked intently at the council, right? And Paul said, Acts 23, brothers, and he says this many times. You see him say this over and over again. Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. There is great pleasure in pleasing God. It's great pleasure to be able to stand up and say, as best I could, by the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in me, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to today. That's the same guy that says, I'm the chief of sinners. He knows he's been forgiven, but he is enjoying the rejoicing of God over his living to please God. If you got questions about, does God rejoice? in our good works, and good works can feel like a bad word or a bad phrase. We, we don't talk about our good works, but oh, the, 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 the scriptures are full of commendations of good works. The scriptures are full of it. Actually, my favorite is Hebrews 13 and the benediction at the end of what feels like a big, long sermon about God not counting good works as anything to merit our relationship and our reconciliation with God and a forgiveness for our sins. But all the way at the end, as, as the preacher of Hebrews is sending out the congregation, he says, this is what he says. Listen, you don't need to turn here, but this is a great one to look at later this afternoon when you start to feel sad and you're not of good courage. Here it is, Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of our sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip you with every good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. There's great pleasure in pleasing God. And we do please God when we obey him and trust him and hope in Him, and cultivate affections for Him, and train ourselves in godliness, and say no a lot. Christians say no a lot. The, no, no, N-O, no. <laughs> no to ungodliness. And yes to pleasing Him. Paul was experiencing this. That's how he could say, I'm of good cheer every day. All the time, I'm living my, my life before the Lord with a good conscience. And where the grace of God pokes its head out of my messed up life, and I feel him rejoicing, and the spirit leaps inside my heart, I'm a good cheer.
good church. God is at work. Scripture is full of this all over the place. Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, for by grace you've been saved through faith. We got that. For, for by grace you've been saved through faith, then this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, right? Even your faith is not yours alone. It's not your good work. I did it. I believed. No, he says, even our faith is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. You know this, created in Christ Jesus. For what? good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them and when we walk in those things which he has prepared beforehand and created us to do we enjoy his pleasure listen feel his pleasure as one of the things I love about you uh, us we rejoice in good works we we hold fast to f- f- salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, for his glory alone. We don't boast about it. It's nothing we have done. But yet, when his salvation and kingdom comes and works in us, in the members of us, as members of the church, and in our bodies, when someone grows in godliness, when someone seems to have matured a little bit, when one of us, when, when I seem to have just grown just a little bit, we rejoice in that. Right? Yes. Relief. Feel the Lord's impression. Make it your ambition to please God. You want a prescription for good courage? You want a prescription for the anxiety that keeps you up at night, that makes you worried and concerned and fearful, and just a general malaise? I don't know what's wrong, but I just don't feel good. Something, or I don't feel nothing. Here's a prescription. Make it your ambition to please God and then enjoy His pleasure. There's great pleasure in pleasing God. He rejoices with every act of faith and trust, big and small. You're caught in the trap. You're down in the pit and you are struggling with the same sin that you said you wouldn't do yesterday and there it is again. And this time, a little grace to resist, to believe something different, to trust God that there's something better for you than whatever it is that you want, that you think will satisfy you today. Enjoy. He's rejoicing over those good works, those good things. Hmm. Communion grows. The distance is narrowed. The Spirit prospers as we trust Him. Okay. God grieves when we do evil. God rejoices when we do good. Reading between the lines. Speaking about the last day. God rewards all who boast in Christ. The one who only did good. Verse 10, if you look at it real quickly with me, he says, for we must all appear. This is in Paul's mind. This is, this is how he could be of good courage, knowing he has trusted Christ, he has experienced this guarantee, this, the spirits at work in him, and it's rejoicing in the pow- his power at work in him and in his body and in his ability to obey. Freedom from sin and the tyranny of sin no longer experiencing guilt and condemnation, but now affection for the Lord and a resolve 
to please the Lord. Paul says, I have in mind a day. Verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This one could trouble you. Because you might think, I, I thought I was going to get a, you know, whatever, pa- pass, what is it in Monopoly? Pass, go and, yeah, get out of jail free. Whatever, you got a ticket to heaven and you're going to bypass the judgment day. And Paul says, oh, Oh no, I, I live with great courage and hope and anticipation of that final day. Not because he knows he will have done no evil and only good, for he's the chief of sinners. But rather that he's going to hear, hear the Savior say, well done, good and faithful servant. You know the parable of the tenants? Let me read it to you. This is how we'll close. The Savior's own words speaking of the ones doing works. Jesus speaking in a parable, a story with a point. Here's what he says. For it will be like a man, he's speaking about the last day. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. Speaking about the last day. This is what Paul's in mind, is in Paul's mind. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. There's a point here. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. And here's what Paul has in mind. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Jesus said, and he also had two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. Two, five, that would make a difference. What was he looking for? His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. There's great pleasure in pleasing God. But the warning, the warning. He who had also received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what, it is, what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him with who has the ten talents for to everyone who has everyone who has will be given 
more will be given, and he who will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And here's the end. And cast the worthless servant out to the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus explaining this last day. Paul's got it in mind. It doesn't matter whether he has five or two or one. The fact that he could serve his master now and enjoy his pleasure now, knowing that one day, even as the chief of sinners, with a string of losses behind him, a lifetime full of regrets, still he could hear the master invite him into his rest because he's trusted him and boasted in Christ, hoped in his work and his good works, but can't leave it here without the warning. You're here today and you're weighing good works and evil works and now you're wondering if there's a connection between your experience in life of anxiety or sadness or fear or depression and wondering, well, maybe I just need to do some more good works. The answer is not take those talents and invest them and try to make more money, <laughs> try to earn more for God, but rather to know that the master is good and gracious. Welcoming all who will trust in his son. You're here this morning and you haven't rested in Christ. Hoped in the power to please him now and to enter into his rest in the future. Let, let me pray for you that you might, you might have faith today. Let me pray. Father, Father, we hope in you this morning and in your work, but at the same time we're sobered to know that our experience, our experience in this life is intricately and compl in a complicated way connected to our soul. And the things we do here now have consequences now and consequences in the life to come. Father, I pray for the one, the one who is sad and depressed, gripped with anxiety, feels like sadness is inescapable, and can't, can't shake off those feelings. Father, I pray you would, oh, you would rejoice over them and their good works and their good deeds, and they would enjoy your pleasure, and in that they would Oh, their souls would, would brighten. And they would be of good courage. And Father, for the one who has not trusted you and is trapped, trapped in their own thoughts and their own heart, stuck in their sin, enslaved to the passions of their flesh, Father, I pray you would free them. Father, I pray for the gift of faith I pray for humility that they might cease from trying and instead trust. Oh Lord, may you, may you be pleased in all of us as we please you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.